Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. This episode is brought to you by Past Life. Life can change at any moment. Are you prepared? The grief a family feels upon losing loved ones is difficult enough, but the days, weeks, and months that follow are filled with stressful decisions. Past Life is a single solution, secure, cloud-based platform where funeral preparations, last wishes, will information, financial assets, business continuation information, social media account information, etc. can be uploaded to the recipients of the user's choosing. Past Life allows you to alleviate the stress and lift the fog for your loved ones, primarily by giving them a vital trove of information in multiple areas. Veterans Path podcast listeners can save 10% by using the code PATH at checkout. Learn more at pastlife.com. That's pass-life.com. Past Life. Pass your loved ones a lifeline. Hey, welcome to the show, Ben. Great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. You've got a hell of a background. And obviously, we're going to get into a lot of that piece on, on your history on the battlefield. But before we get into that, let's back up the, the movie reel a little bit and get, get back to what inspired you to join the military as a whole, and then specifically what inspired you to pursue going to the United States Military Academy. Um, so, you know, honestly, I, so, so I came from kind of like, uh, I guess, your normal middle-class background on Long Island, and uh, I ended up going to boarding school for high school down in Virginia and got really big into lacrosse, and that was kind of, that was my thing, and uh, I, I really just wanted to play college lacrosse at a D1 level, and two of the two of the, uh, the big schools that were, that were most interested in me for lacrosse uh, was the Naval Academy in West Point, and it kind of just worked out that I, I ended up going to West poorly. Point. I know. <laughs> I, was oh, man, the, I had to say yeah. that. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it just it just worked out that way. And you know, honestly, looking back, I, I loved I, I loved going to West Point, and I'm sure just like I, you know, you're an academy guy too, and yeah, uh, I'm sure we can give plenty each other plenty of grief about that. Oh, totally. Uh, um, but it, it's I'm sure you have the same experience going going to Annapolis, where it's just this. Uh, incredible brotherhood and uh guys that i'm sure classmates and people from school that you're still friends with that's that's how it is for me and uh i I loved going going to west point and especially playing lacrosse there uh the team was a a fraternity in itself and still my my best friends uh to this day are guys that i played lacrosse with nice did uh i'm forgetting the years but uh did you know brendan looney at all uh, yeah. So actually, I think so. I played with all three loonies. Um, yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, there's a poster. I'll have to send it to you later. Um, but one of my friends on the team, when I was in the hospital, blew up this big picture uh, of me uh, to put in like my my hospital room, me playing lacrosse, and it was actually verse, uh, not Brendan, 
uh, one of his other brothers. It wasn't Steve. Yeah, it was Steve um, Brendan, and I forget the other guy. Uh, Billy. 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 Yes. Yep. So I think it's me guarding Billy. Um, and then Steve and I, Steve was pretty much the, the Ben Harrow of the Navy team where he was the short stick D midi and was on the, all the face off. So we always lined up against one another. And then Small world. I know. And then in 2010, um, uh, Brendan, uh, ends up getting killed in Afghanistan and we were in the right. same, so we were in the same soda. So I was at oh, wow. his, I was at his memorial uh, ceremony at TK in I guess it was 2010, 2011 timeframe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, just small world uh, wow. playing lacrosse versus these guys and just mother effing them. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you end up serving with them. And right. uh, it was, it was just, you know, that, that's, that's just such a cool thing to, you know, wanting to beat this shit out of each other on the lacrosse field. And then, you know, you graduate and then it's like, all right guys, now we're on the same team. And absolutely. There's nothing I like mean, that you know even going through the academies before you graduate yeah we were definitely enemies on the battlefield yeah but, I mean, yeah. what do they say during every army navy football game or any service academy football game it's, it's one of the few games that you can watch where everybody on the field is willing to die for everybody watching yeah and 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 that having that in common whether you're on the same team or opposing teams puts you on the ultimate same team I and mean, we're all yeah. americans it, exactly uh, fighting, yeah. fighting. and i'm sure you've been you, you you've probably been to like social events or any sort of function and find out he's a uh, an air force grad or like a west point grad you you probably normally just gravitate and hang out with them for the entire evening telling academy stories 100 percent, man yeah. as a matter of fact <laughs> I, just, I just had breakfast this morning with a 96 grad from west point and uh and we started you know doing the name game and of course yeah. within like within like one degree of separation we're like yeah i know that guy just like we're doing right now it's crazy yeah. uh, how that how small that, that world is and then even outside of the service academies because i'm sure our listeners are starting to get bored about us talking about the service academies, <laughs> just just in the in the military as a whole it's it's a big organization but it's a crazy how often you come across people who know you know the same people and you yeah. know one to two degrees of separation it's pretty wild but so yeah, you went to the West Point. You went to West Point. You play lacrosse. You ran into the the Looney Brothers, and yeah. then you you come to commissioning, and you decide what what is it that you decide to go into? I'm I know because I got your bio sitting off here. Yeah. But just for our so listeners. so so I, I branched infantry um, because I graduated from West Point in 2005, and Iraq and Afghanistan are were getting hot and heavy with the GWAT, and um, it was, it was an interesting time because, you know, we had uh, upperclassmen at school that had died already in Afghanistan, guys that have died already and girls that had already died in Iraq. And it was, it was real, you know, you're not in college anymore. And uh, I, I like, you know, myself and a lot of my teammates wanted to get in the fight and, and kind of get hot and heavy with it. So we, there was a majority of us on the team branched infantry uh, just knowing that would get us to, you know, the, the front lines of it really. And, uh, so I branched infantry and went to Iraq in 06 to 07. And I was one of the lucky ones that got extended while I was in Iraq. So what was supposed to be a 12 month deployment, uh, we get extended to 15 months. So I, you know, when you, when you celebrate two Thanksgivings in Iraq, you're like, it's just, <laughs> this is, we've been here. We, I've done yeah. this. I've seen these decorations. I just, it's time to go. Let's wrap this up. You know, <laughs> where were you? Where were you in Iraq? 
So I was at a place called, most of my time was at a place called uh, Firebase Palo Alto, which was right outside the actual city of Balad. So yep. if you leave uh, LSA Anaconda, the Balad Air Base, and go like 40 minutes west on, um, I forget the name of that MSR, it, it will take you to Palo Alto, which is the, the little fire base that's right outside of the actual city of Balad. And while I was there, I actually ended up uh, working with uh, the, the ODA or ODAs that were at uh, Palo Alto, that fire base. And I had always kind of wanted to get into special operations and it just, you know, you're, you're a young infantry lieutenant and you know about Ranger Regiment and you, you know about SF, but you don't really like fully know about their, the capabilities and the mission. And while I was there and, and got a chance to work with them and go on the objective with them, spend time with them, uh, like plan with them, I was like, no, nah, this, is, this is the varsity. Like, I want to I be one of these guys. Nice. And uh, while I was there, I, I put in my packet to go to SFAS, the Special Forces Assessment and Selection. And uh, when I returned from Iraq, uh, I, I trained up for a couple months, really, that I guess that would have been the beginning of 08. And then I went to selection in July or June of 08, that summer. Nice. Yeah. And then for our listeners, just uh, spelled out SFAS uh, for the, for those who are listening, the ODA is Operational Detachment Alpha. So yeah. That's kind of the, the, the small team of special forces operators that by, are- By uh, all means, are, stop me if I use the acronyms and I don't I, declare I, them I out do, first. <laughs> I, I'm guilty of it all the time. And, I, and then I go back and listen to my show. That's the only reason I even stopped you was because I, I, I listened to my show afterwards just to make sure that I, I'm asking yeah. intelligent questions. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't spell that out. Cause it's, it's really easy. Like, like you sit two special forces guys, special operators yeah. rather, together <laughs> and we start just wrapping off all these acronyms, but yeah. Um, ODA operational detachment alpha, similar to as far as size, similar to, but not exactly the size of a, of a, a seal platoon. Um, so that's, that's what Ben is talking about there. So you go to SFAS and, and tell us the story from there. Yeah. Um, so went, went to selection, which, I mean, that's probably a whole mindful my podcast in itself about uh, the, the, the mental toughness piece, right? Sure. And, uh, you know, you really learn, and I'm sure just like for you that uh, in, during the buds and the, the pipeline and all the training that you do, it's, they're not just looking for the physical stud, but they're looking for the, uh, as General Donovan, the, the founder of the OSS back in World War II said, right, uh, I'm looking for Princeton grads that can win bar fights. So it's- yep. It's someone that's not just a physical stud, but also is mentally tough enough to endure and also uh, a thinker and, and thinking about the, the secondary and tertiary effects of all of your decisions on the battlefield and, you know, everything that you do to be able to continually think about the, the strategic circumstances and strategic uh, after effects of what you do on the battlefield. So SFAS, uh, you know, it's, it's selection and uh, it is what it is, um, got selected and ended up starting the special forces qualification course or the Q course, as we call it, in the winter of 2009. And then I ended up graduating the Q course in April of 2010. So it's a, you know, the Q course is, is pretty long. Uh, it, it can be longer depending on your, what group you're going to, what language is your specialty, um, what your specialty on the team is. Obviously, if you're a medic, you're, you're going through medical training and that's a whole nother dance. Um, so, yeah. Right on. And, and we were talking about this before I hit record, but 
the the difference between a SEAL platoon and an ODA as far as mission and what it is you guys are doing in country. Again, probably something we should cover for our listeners just to give them a little bit of context. And I think you covered it in a perfect analogy before we hit record. Can you hit that up again before uh, or sure. before we get into any more? <clears throat> so I, I, I always get asked from, from people that don't understand uh, how the military works or they're just, you know, they, they just don't know, you know, all your special forces, is that like a Navy SEAL? And how I break it down is I say, you know, SEALs are, or the seals are, are great at what they do. There's nobody better than them. And I, I think of them almost closer to, to Rangers in a sense of they're, they're, they're like checkers masters and nobody's going to beat them at that, at that game. And they're, they're best at it. And SF guys are more of like chess masters. And it's not, once again, not like a put down in any way, it's just two, two different games where there's some similarities and each organization can work and mesh well together to accomplish the overall mission. Um, it's just that we, there's just different things that we do. There's different things that you guys do. And it depends on what the, the, the mission is and what you want to accomplish, right? You know, is it a maritime mission? Well, nobody's going to be doing, you know, maritime, uh, stuff better than the seals, you know, why, why are you going to have a, an ODA try and do a halo <laughs> infill, you know, to, to, to do some sort of sub lockout or sub lock in, you know, it's, that's, that's your stuff. And, uh. Yeah, it's just, it's different. Um, you know, it's like we were saying before too, it's like, well, what do you, what's the best weapon out there? Well, I, I don't right. know. What do you, where are you trying to shoot? Are you trying to shoot from one mountaintop to another mountaintop? Are you, are you shooting in a house or are you shooting from a car? And, you know, there's just, it, it's different. So. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love that analogy. I'm going to start using that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so now given that context, you end up being a, an SF ODA commander twice in Afghanistan. Yep. Can can you explain what it was you were doing over there? And then we'll get into obviously the kind of the meat and potatoes of the conversation with your injury and after. But prior to that injury, what were you doing in Afghanistan? Yeah. So um our primary mission in Afghanistan and, and what we were doing as as SF guys in Afghanistan was securing our areas of operation that we were given as commanders uh on the battlefield and uh, really helping the local populace secure and better themselves. I mean, that's really the, the easiest way I can, I can make it without using military jargon that, that people may not understand. Um, you know, in, in 2010 and 11, that deployment, it, it started off very kinetic with a lot of, you know, kill capture type missions and what you would think special operations guys are doing and these nighttime air assaults. And um, it ended up, turning into and transitioning because we were very successful at that first part of, of working with the local populace to achieve those objectives and taking off the battlefield, whoever needed to be taken off the battlefield. To the end of that deployment, we were we hired 300 villagers to build themselves a road to improve their own village. And with that come that line of communication and that road, now the villagers can use the, the bigger bazaar down at the, uh, uh, the, the bigger city down there. You know, they could bring in uh, the, it's not the Red Cross, the Red Crescent workers, right? They, so you could bring in like some, yep. some hospital and clinic folks. And it's these little things that uh, allowed them to, to better themselves. And I remember towards the end of that deployment, my JTAC and myself were walking from our little compound where we were living in the, the valley, just like Afghans, um, you know, not in a big fire base at all. And we were walking through the village, just my JTAC and my Terp and myself. 
down to the uh, the road, the main construction area where we're helping them kind of carve out this road along the uh, the river. And we came across the village elder, one of the village elders that we were working with. And I was like, hold, I was like, wait, are they having a sure right now? Like I I didn't know. That's I, I was so happy to see that because normally before um, the the Taliban wouldn't let them meet and do their own little uh, self governance. And normally. It would be like every Tuesday at the ODA, you know, our little compound. I want you guys to come and meet, discuss whatever you need to do and, and use our little meeting room as like your kind of self-government area and to walk upon them doing their own thing that they have normally been doing for the past hundreds of years in Pashtun culture. But we had a, allowed them to, to do that again without fear or reprisal from the Taliban. That was kind of like, you know, my JTAC and I like high fives. And we're like, this is it. This is what we were fighting, you know. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. Like that, that's a, that's a simple measure of success. And, you know, people, I'm sure you get asked the question too, well, like, are we successful? Would you call it a victory in Afghanistan? You know, like, have we been successful? And yeah. I always tell people, I mean, well, how are you measuring success? So you're measuring it with this big American, you know, meter stick where you're like, all right, there's a, there's a uh, three houses of government or there's a parliament and it's a big, uh, there's, a, there's some sort of Supreme court and judicial system and people are voting and everyone's represented. Or are you measuring success in like the costume culture with maybe it's like this little, uh, you know, t smaller measuring stick where it's just like, all right, can people go from their dirt compound down to the Hellman river and farm and not worried about getting killed or stepping in an IED or just be able to live their own life and culture the way that they have been living for the past 500 years, maybe that's success. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, for, for us, that deployment, you know, to see that, that was, we thought that was very successful. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to my, my second deployment as an SF guy, um, different area of Afghanistan. Um, so kind of had to relearn, uh, those, the, the locals kind of, uh, not value values and customs and kind of just what was going on in that neighborhood compared to where we were before, but it was, it was and that, very similar. that changes like for, again, for our listeners who haven't been to Afghanistan, yeah. that can change from one village to the next. And that could be literally right up against one another. And the culture yeah. can change the customs. You know, and, and in Afghanistan for, for folks that, that don't know, I mean, that there's, you can go from one village to just over a mountain into another village and they have no idea about what's going on on the other side or no idea that there's this, uh, you, you know, the national government or the flag. It's so separated geographically just because of the terrain. Um, I mean, that's, you know, looking back at history, that's really why the Mongols weren't very successful at conquering Afghanistan. That's why the, the Brits weren't very successful at conquering right. Afghanistan. That's why the Russians weren't very good at conquering Afghanistan. That's why we went in, we weren't thinking about conquering Afghanistan. It was just, how do we support the Afghans to, to do what they need to do for to, to be right. a, a strategic success. Um, but yeah, so are some of the techniques and tactics that we used our first deployment to work with the local populace, we were able to translate that to the second deployment. Um, and then some things we just had to reevaluate and, and kind of start from scratch, but you know, you're, it's interesting. You're really working in the gray, you know, it's, you're kind of just handed this crazy situation and it's like, all right, go do something great, go do special operations, you know? And it's like, yeah, all right. It's, it's, it's pretty, wild, wild you, west. it really is. <laughs> For sure. So, so, uh, um, I misspoke earlier when I said 
let's talk up until your injury. Uh, I want to make sure I use the right terminology. You were combat wounded. And, yeah. you know, and, 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 I, and I, the only reason I make a distinguish, uh, distinguish those two is, you know, a, an injury is, hey, you could stub your toe or sprain your ankle, and that's an injury, and that can pre- prevent you from being on the, on the battlefield. But you were combat wounded, and I, and I would just want to honor that and, yeah. and make sure that people understand that. So can you go into your injury and then, there I go again, yeah. your combat, <laughs> so you're being combat wounded, and then, and then kind of what happened the aftermath? Yeah, um, so 15 May 2012, uh, walked through a doorway, stepped on a pressure plate IED during a, during a patrol, during, during a mission and uh, stepped on the device, which ended up actually kicking off uh, an ambush. They had, the, the Taliban had actually been waiting for somebody to, you know, they, they knew that they had planted uh, booby traps in that area of the village and uh, were waiting for somebody to step on it. And I was the one that ended up stepping on it. And I, so I, my team had to fire and maneuver really to get to me while uh, they, mm. they kind of did their usual thing from outside the village took some pop shots for about a minute and then broke contact and my team was able to get to me. And, uh, so I, I ended up stepping on the IED and, uh, you know, I played college across. I grew up playing hockey. I, I know what it feels like to get my bell rung. And, uh, I mean, it just, it, it's an understatement to say that it, it hurt, you know, like the way it, <laughs> I would I definitely almost, say that's an understatement. Like, you know, at first I thought laying there, and just feeling that like reverberation through my body of the, the overpressure, it, it felt like if you ever hit a, a metal bat, like kind of um, in that thin part and you just feel that, that uh, yeah. vibration through your bone. Like I felt that all the way, like through my teeth, it felt like. Mm. And uh, my first thought was, all right, maybe a mortar had landed behind me and kind of blew me forward. And that's what I like, I felt because it, I still, for that split second, I didn't like feel like I had stepped on a bomb. I was, I just felt myself on the, I felt that huge like hit. I felt myself on the ground and then, and then it just kind of turned into chaos <clears throat> and um, I couldn't see anything. And uh, I felt, I felt someone over me yelling, you know, like, holy shit. Oh my God. And I heard this like thick Southern accent and I just automatically was like, oh, that's that's uh, one of the infantry uplift kids, like one of the infantry squad guys that were attached to my ODA. Like he must be working on hooning closer to the blast. That's like really injured. Um, and I still thought that there was like another person injured and, you know, just be cool, Ben, and kind of like, you know, see, just, just, just do you and like, like stay with it. And you, I couldn't really move. And uh, I just thought that some other one had, somebody else had been hurt. They'll find him. They'll find me just, just be cool and calm. And, uh, and then I think I started to have like bits and bits of pain. Um, I don't, I don't like really remember the pain, but I do remember hearing somebody else like yell, just screaming bloody murder. And, uh, I thought that was the other casualty, but it was, it was actually me just yelling on the ground. And, um, and then things kind of got, I get, I'd say like a little more kind of chaotic and, you know, I'm like, I felt like I was here. I felt I was somewhere else. I felt I was here. I felt I was somewhere else and kind of slipping off. And I remember um, kind of had like this like moment of like clarity. And I had this three by five photo that I kept uh, in my, in my chew, like in my little room back at the fire base. 
and it was a picture of uh, Gina and Peyton and my son. And it was like, we, it must've been like our family of photos, like right before I left or whenever, but he was nine months old and she's holding him in his arms. And it just felt like I, I had, it was like this recognition. I'm in a serious situation, like life or death. I'm living in this photo at the moment and nothing is going to take me from like this photo. Nothing's going to take me from Gina and Peyton. And I just remember saying over and over like Gina and Peyton, Gina and Peyton, and how, no matter like how crazy everything felt around me, it gave me this like little extra boost, just to kind of like stay with it. And, um, it just, you know, I, I think it gave my team, my teammates a little more time to, to work on me and, and do what they needed to do on me. And then there just came this time where like, uh, you're, you're a seal. So you know this, like if you're ever at the bottom of the pool and you're like, I got to breathe. And you just have that feeling of like, you start to guppy and you're like, yeah. like that, like I got, I got Chicken really need to breathe. Exactly. Yep. And, uh, it, it kind of like felt like that where you're like, all right, I got to go up and get a breath. Um, except it was like the reverse where it was just like, whatever I'm doing, I gotta like, I, I can't, I gotta let go. And I, I said out loud, um, which I, I thought I said out loud, you know, via voice, but my, I asked my medic afterward. He's like, nah, man, he's like, you weren't saying anything. You're, you were, you weren't responding. Um, so I said out loud, sorry, Gina, my wife's name, like just thinking like, like, I, yeah, like I, I did, I gave it my all. And, um, and then I, I ended up waking up in, uh, in Germany in launch stool three days later. So, you know, I, I stepped on the device, my team got to me, uh, to my teammates, you know, tourniquet in my entire body and, uh, started to try and go to work on me. I got medevaced, uh, about 10 minutes, um, from point of injury. It took me, it took, it took, it took about 10 minutes for me from point of injury to get to Kandahar airfield. So my team was pretty quick on a call on the medevac and, uh, you know, the doctors told Gina, there's really only two reasons, you know, your husband's alive still is one, his teammates did a textbook job uh, working on him. And then secondly, he just, you know, he, he was mentally tough enough and had the will to live because really in a situation like that, like that's kind of what it comes down to. You can do everything medically perfect. Um, but if you just, if you're, if the patient can't kind of want it, um, you know, you can drift off. So, I mean, I yeah. ended up losing... I think it was like 75 units of blood. And uh, when I got to the trauma center, uh, they ran out of APOS just from pumping so much into me. So they had to start doing like the battlefield, like old school, you know, whoever's APOS, like I need your blood. Yeah. So like for a year afterwards, every three months, I was getting like a blood test just to make sure I didn't get anything from whoever yeah. was don't give me blood. So, uh, so yeah. And uh, I'll tell, I'll tell this like little funny story from me waking up in launch tool and then, and then we can move along. Uh, so I wake up in Germany and uh, the, I, I, it felt like my five senses had just been reset because, you know, I was, when I got to Kandahar, they immediately uh, intubated me and knocked me out and started closing me up and working on me. And uh, so I, I had, I had meant, I, like, I didn't just like go to sleep. And then I woke up in Germany. Um, it felt like I was in some sort of like nightmare type situation. Like it really, mm -hmm. it just didn't, it, it was, it was rough and no concept of time, just just felt like in a dark place. And I remember just praying to God, like, I need something to drink, like, wake me up. Like I got it. Like, I just felt so thirsty. Um, probably just from all the, you know, I hadn't drank for three days and all the narcs and stuff that they were pumping into me. Sure. And so I, I I'm finally uh, awake and I like have cotton mouth and I can hardly speak. And it just, it felt like a female, not sure if it was, but she's like, Captain Harrow, you know, do you know where you are? I'm like, no, she's like, you're in launch Germany. 
So like right away, I'm thinking, all right, whatever, whatever kind of nightmare situation I feel like I've been living in and however long my eyes have been shut, like something, something's bad, like something, something bad happened. And so uh, she said, the next she asked, you know, do you, do you know what happened? And I said, no. And she said, you stepped on an IED. So, you know, my first question is like, well, did I lose a leg? And she's like, I'm sorry, but you lost both your, both your legs. And so I was silent for a second and I was like, all right, do I have my dick? And she's like, <laughs> yep. She's like, yep. She's like, uh, you have your penis. Um, and I was like, all right. And like, and now I'm starting to run down the list. And I'm like, well, do I have my hands? Like, I, cause I can't see anything and I just got yeah. woken up and she's like, well, you know, you lost, you lost two fingers on your right hand and um, you suffered significant soft tissue damage on your right forearm, but don't worry, the doctor's going to fix you. You know, they, they think that they can save your arm. And I'm like, all right, like two fingers, but I still got my dick, right? Like it's still there. And she's like, yes, it's still there. And then, <laughs> and then I passed back out. And that's really like the only thing I like, I, I honestly remember about Germany is, is that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was wondering how, how you were going to turn that into a funny story. And that, that's great, man. And it reminds me of um, a band of brothers when one of the guys gets a, a pretty bad injury. I'm sure you've watched the whole band yeah. of brothers series, but there's <laughs> like gets blown up and he's like checking everything. And his buddy, and his buddy sees that he's still got that his yeah. unit. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, still it's, got there. It. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> wow, man. So you talk about uh, your mental toughness helped to get you through that, not just the after effects, but the immediate right there on the battlefield, your mentally toughness got your mental toughness got you through yeah. that. How do you think that mental toughness was developed? Um, I mean, definitely over time, right? You know, high school athlete, college athlete, SF guy, I think mental toughness is just like any other muscle. Like you gotta, you, you have to, you have to work out to develop it, right? Like if you want to be a great runner, you have to, you have to train to run. If you want to be a bodybuilder, you have to train to be a bodybuilder. And I think it's the same thing with mental toughness. Um, you know, you really have to be able to, to, to practice kind of like living outside your comfort zone. And I've, I've come to realize now, especially in my life as an amputee and as with prosthetics and being able to kind of like look back and learn on my lessons as an, as an athlete and as an SF guy and applying that to life now, you know, the more that you're able to practice doing the uncomfortable things and finding comfort in uncomfort, the easier those uncomfortable situations get. And I, like I said, I, that's something that I, I do now all the time with prosthetics, you know, and, and, and relearning how to walk and, and walk down slopes and trip and fall. Like nobody likes falling, you know, tr just trying to walk down a simple hill, but just relearning how to walk and, and doing those uncomfortable things. Um, you know, that, you know, talking back about when I got injured and laying there, um, you know, just being able to, to, to kind of focus on you and to, I was able to kind of push out like what didn't matter. And I just had, I was, nothing was going to take me from that floor. Like I was, I know I was bleeding out. I know I was effed up, but like, I just, I was set on nothing was going to take me at that moment. Nice man. That, that uh, just lends credence to, you know, the, the, the value of sports when you're young yeah, yeah, you know, a, a lot of people are like, "Hey, I'm not going to waste my child's time with sports. It's it's meaningless." But I think there's there's toughness that's developed, and then there's so many other life lessons that are developed in in 
individual sports and in team sports. So I think it's huge to yeah. develop character, to develop uh, so much of what makes us um, leaders in, in the military or elsewhere. So yeah. uh, I'm thankful that you had that background going into what you went through. Um, so come back to Longstool, you wake up, you check that some of your parts are still in place yeah. and now you pass out. How long were you in Longstool before you're flown back to the States? And how long was it before Gina and you and Peyton were reunited? So, so Gina was trying to get to Germany um, before I, they had woken me up. And they, wow. they were trying to wake me up uh, because they wanted me to be conscious for the flight back uh, instead of having to put me on, uh, I guess, a ventilator for the flight or... Uh, they just wanted me to be breathing on my own, I think, for the flight. Um, and I had, I think I was in launch school for a couple of days. Um, I know me being the good SF guy, uh, when I was back in DC here in Bethesda at Walter Reed waiting for some surgeries one time, they left my big medical record. So I'm like, all right, if just going to do some intel on myself and see what, like, see what was going on, like, while I was unconscious, <laughs> right? And turned out I had like 104, 105 fever from all the infections when I was in Germany and they had like packed me on ice and they were worried I was, um, uh, I had a blood clot and all this other crazy stuff that like I had no, no one even told me about, but I read it in my medical record. And I was like, holy shit. And um, so they, Gina was trying to get over there, but the, uh, they, I couldn't wake up and they, I wasn't really out of the clear yet. And I had this huge fever and I had all these infections going on. So they told Gina, they was like, look, honestly, you could fly over here to Germany and you know, we're not going to stop you, but just be, just know that if he does die, no, you won't be there to receive the body at Dover. So we're just telling you to stay put, you know, we're trying to get him back to the States as fast as possible. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know tomorrow. Like we'll let you know tomorrow. And that, I guess that turned out to be like three or four days. And then I was, they were able to wake me up. I flew back uh, to Walter Reed, which I kind of remember like a little bit of the flight here and there, just being like super thirsty um, and uh, get to Walter Reed. Um, it was almost like out of a dream because <clears throat> I remember seeing, I remember seeing like, it was so weird because I remember seeing uh, like my friends from, one of my good friends from West Point that I played lacrosse with and his wife there. And it's like, all right, like, how the hell did they get into this? <clears throat> you know, like, yeah. they, like, it's just so bizarre. And uh, I saw some of my other friends. So like, that's what I mean. It, it, it was so weird to me to see like friends of mine from college and friends of mine from, from, uh, from seventh group that like, they didn't know each other, but they were like hanging out, like right there, like watching me get off the ambulance. And I remember seeing Gina and uh, like, I got wheeled by her and I was like, Hey babe, like that real quick. And uh, I think that's I the first every- time you guys see, see one another after all this. Yeah. And then <laughs> I think I was in the elevator or uh, somehow we were like all in a small room, like around my bed uh, or the stretcher, I guess, or moving me up to the, uh, the trauma center or wherever, getting ready for uh, surgery. And I remember going, uh, well, I think I turned to her and said, my my dreams of being a calf model or shot or something like that just, just to just to like just to like i don't know make light of it or i'll be like yeah. it's cool like i'm here it's cool I'm, I'm good you know like obviously i'm banged up but like it's it's still ben and uh, and honestly that's what she she told people you know in the beginning when they're like well how's ben doing and she's like well honestly it's 
it's just, it's Ben. It's just Ben without legs, and it's it's it, you know, which is great. You know, she was so happy to to know that I was still had still had my wits about me, and obviously, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Um, right. So that was the first time, and then you know, the first time I saw Peyton uh, was probably uh, within the first month, but he you know, he didn't recognize me. He was scared of me. Um, oh, and I, I get it. I, you know, sure. I saw, I left when he was nine months old. And so when I came back, he was, uh, uh, I guess he, his birthday is in March and I got injured in May. So he was like 15, 16 months old when I, when I first saw him, maybe 16 or 17 months old when I, I first saw him again, mm. no idea who I was just as, you know, he's in this weird hospital setting, you know, and he didn't want to be on my bed and he was crying and, which, you know, sucks as a dad, but I understood yeah. that it's like, you know, he has no idea and I, I totally get it. And, you know, I, I feel like that may have been, that was one of the big uh, impetuses, I guess, of me just being very gung-ho and set on, look, this is an effed up situation, but I'm going to be the best father that I can to Peyton and eventually Marquesa. Like, you know, there's been times where I've had a, you know, scoot across wherever on my butt to get to like down a hill or like playing at the park with Peyton or, you know, uh, I, I've just, I, I will always try and go above and beyond for, for my kids just because I, I know I've set them back in a way, I guess, because the way that maybe my dad was able to play sports with me, I unfortunately can't do that with my son. So I'm, I'm mindful of that. And I don't know, I try and make it up in other ways. Yeah, I don't think you've set them back. Uh, it's just a different trajectory. It's not, it's not setting them back. Yeah. yeah, I know it's definitely not. I know it's not setting them back. It's just, uh, it's just different. You know, yeah. like we still, we still do great things. Like, you know, especially during like, uh, during COVID, uh, when everything was on lockdown, like I still made sure like, look, come after your like morning school classes. Um, it was me and Peyton and Marquesa and we would go out back and I would chase them around on the, uh, you know, we have a little swing set out back. I'd push them on the swings. I'd play with them. We'd be outside. I'd make Peyton, uh, you know, like run patterns, like football patterns in the backyard. And whether I was on my legs or I was in my wheelchair, like I was throwing passes to him in the backyard and then come like, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we're lucky enough that we're, we have a pool in our backyard. I would, uh, we open up the pool early. So we kept, I kept the pool cold and then I'd turn the hot tub on. I'm like, all right, guys, time to get in the ice bath. Like we jump in the yeah. cold water, we play in the hot tub. I was like, all right, everyone's having fun. Time to get uncomfortable again, jump in that cold water, <laughs> you know, and then we jump back in the hot tub. And so just to, just to do stuff with them and tire them out and uh, keep them entertained. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a great time. Yeah. Well, you found a new way to instill that mental toughness. So good, good yeah. on you. Um, so you, uh, in your bio, it mentions that that you had uh, no, you're good, man. You're good. Um, you, it mentions that you refuse to give into your circumstances, which you've kind of covered here with your mental t- toughness, your your sense of humor, which I think is also huge in a time like that. But it also says that you discovered a medical procedure to not only get yourself up and walking, but other wounded service members as well. What is yeah. that? Can you talk about that? <clears throat> yeah. So. So, so much of the blast uh, took off uh, a good chunk of my right leg and my femur. And like I said, there's so much dirt that got blown up into me with all the infections. So the doctors had to keep like cutting away and cutting away and cutting away at my femur. And um, 
at the time, my right leg was so short that I couldn't wear full-size prosthetics like I wear now. Um, it would, the socket would just kind of like pop off and I, I would have to wear this like cumbersome belt to keep it on. And I was like, this is not the everyday situation. Like I get it that like, we're trying to, we're trying to make this work, but like, there's no way I'm going to be wearing this belt every day and like <laughs> being as, being as active as I want to be. And at the same time, you know, not to their discredit, but I feel like maybe they just weren't used to working with a person like myself a lot of the, the therapists at the hospital were kind of like, well, you know, at least you're alive, you know, this is it. And I was like, guy, like I was a college athlete. I was a green beret. This is the wrong effing attitude to have to just tell me like, this is it shoulder shrug, you know, like, yeah. All right. With that attitude, you're not my person, you know, like I'm no, <laughs> you're, apparently you're not my therapist. Like I'll figure it out another way and which, which I did. And, um, so I did my own, so we're down the, the backstory is we're down in Florida, um, for Thanksgiving and it would have been 2012, uh, first Thanksgiving back. And we're down in Florida at my in-laws and I brought my like little training legs to just stay on top of it. And like, I, I'm, I really want to get going and I've, I'm starting to work out again. And like, I just want to walk and get this process going. And it's super frustrating because my right leg just keeps popping off. And I, I tell Gina, I'm like, it's not, it's not the magician. It's the wand. Like I'm, I'm ready to go. It's just the equipment is failing me. And, uh, really through her, her impetus and, and, uh, uh, just working problem solving with her. She was like, look, like, isn't there any, you know, isn't there anything that they can do? And like, can't the doctors do anything for you at, at Walter Reed? And I was like, well, I mean, it's Walter Reed. If they, if they had a solution, they, they sh I figured they would tell me by now. And so uh, I started to do my own research and it turned out that there's this process called osseodistraction and, and limb lengthening. And basically what I found online was uh, women in like Russia and China to go off and try and be models would get their shin bones broken to stretch it out yeah. to be a little taller. Yeah. And uh, mm. it's, it's really the same, you know, it's a, the same process that you do for limb lengthening um, for, for like a femur or tip fib. So when I got back to Walter Reed after Thanksgiving, I was like, look, I was like, if this is this process, if they can do this for a tip and a fib, can you do it for a femur? And they're like, well, we've never, we've never done this on an amputee. Obviously we know about this process and they normally use it for correcting like major breaks to like realign the bone. And, uh, they put me in touch with a doctor in Baltimore, who's like the American guru of, uh, bone lengthening. And uh, Gene and I go up to Baltimore and he's like, Ben, you know, I saw your x-rays. Um, I can definitely get you like two to three inches of bone. Um, and I'm like, great, that's awesome. You know, like, let's do this this afternoon. You know, like, when do we start? And he's like, well, the, you know, here's the, the, da the downside is, you know, for like eight to 10 months, you're going to have this piece of metal on you lengthening the bone. And so it's like half in you, half out. So there's a big risk of infection, which right away I'm like, um, all right, this is, this is tough because I already suffered such bad infections and my immune system was already stressed out. And so I was getting infections pretty easily. And that was like, I had to be very careful about that. Sure. And, uh, you know, I would have to turn, literally turn the screws with a wrench like four times a day to slowly lengthen the bone. And so I'm thinking like, all right, if this is the way I'll do it, but this is like telling me, I was just like, I was just starting to work out again. I was being active again. So like, it's as if I was, it's as if I graduated ranger school, but on day 72, you told me, Hey, we'll still let you do rain. We'll still let you like graduate, but you have to day one yourself and redo the entire process. Like, 
I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But is there any other way besides making me like, re, like start over from scratch? Yep. And um, so he's like, well, there is a process that's all internal. You know, if you're worried about the infection stuff <laughs> and being active, you know. Um, so he put me in touch with this doctor up in Minnesota, um, a guy named Dr. Dahl. And uh, it was this internal device instead of an external fixator. So uh, the risk of infection was extremely low, if you know, none at all. And uh, so I, he sends my x-rays to Dr. Dahl. A couple of weeks later, I get a call from the doctor from Minnesota. He's like, Ben, I, I got your x-rays. I can get you like two to three inches of bone growth. Um, and I, I eventually did all my coordination with the SOCOM Care Coalition here in DC. The, the guys were super helpful, helping me like, you know, I had this outside of the box uh, way to regrow bone. I need, I need to get up to Minnesota. And they're like, all right, like whatever you need, we'll, we'll help you. So nice. I was able to get up to Minnesota and uh, start the process. And basically what it was, if this is, if this was like my femur, uh, they, he, he broke it in a way where there was still blood flow to either side of the break. And then he drilled into the distal end. So this is like where my foot would have been like pointing down, yep. right? So the distal end, he drilled in, inserted this device and then screwed it to either side of the brake. And up by my hip bone, there was a radio receiver that was buried underneath my skin. So then four times a day, instead of me turning the screws of the wrench, four times a day, I would put on my stethoscope. I would find the radio receiver underneath my skin, take a radio transmitter that was really just attached to a, a box plugged in the wall flip the switch and then I would count the turns internally going on. And that's how we would lengthen the bone and lengthen the bone and lengthen Dude. the bone. And so long story short, uh, two, three surgeries, one little minor setback. I ended up not only getting the bone length I needed, but uh, instead of like the two to three inches of bone that he thought I was going to get, I was able to get five to six inches of bone. It was, it was technically 13.8 centimeters of bone growth. Wow. And so it was definitely more than enough that, that I needed. And, you know, like, like you said before, you know, when you're reading the notes, um, it was cool that I got myself up and walking and like, I, it's great. But I, to be honest, like the, the real pat on my back that I give myself or like I'm, I'm most proud about is that like, I, I made myself patient zero. Like I did the research on this. I, I, I coordinated all this. Like we worked you know, it was, it was me that I pretty much experimented on. And now it's a process and procedure that they do for other guys at the hospital, because blast injuries are a lot different than like a car accident. You know, it's just whatever the overpressure and the, the boom leaves you with, and you have to deal with infections. A lot of guys um, are left with one, one limb longer than the other. And it's, it's very, very difficult for when it comes to prosthetics and trying to live uh, you know, the quote unquote, like more normal life walking around on, on two fake legs. Dude, that, first of all, it's, that sounds like some type of science fiction movie uh, when you, when you <clears throat> describe exactly what that process looked like and having the radio transmitter in your leg and everything else, that's incredible. And then second of all, good on you for not settling and continuing to push the envelope and identifying this, but not only for yourself, it sounds like it's now a procedure that has become something that almost normal for amputees who need it. And you have literally changed lives for the better. So that's, that's amazing, yeah. man. Holy cow. I mean, it was, I, <clears throat> nobody likes getting, I, no, you know, nobody likes getting put in like the dead end. We're like, Hey, like this is, this is kind of it. So I'm, I, I like the fact that I was able to open up a door for, I mean, it's maybe it's only four or five guys that I know of that have actually done it, but 
that's still an option or an opportunity that four or five guys didn't have before. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just the ones that you know of. And that's just, yeah. to this day. I mean, I, I, it sounds like it's going to be something that will change other people's lives for the better. And you may not ever, ever know about it. Yeah. Uh, like, Which is fine. <laughs> wow. <you know? laughs> wow. Dude. Uh, yeah. When I, like I read that in the bio and, and I didn't fully grasp what the procedure was and I didn't fully grasp the, uh, the, Hey, you, that you had literally helped to discover this through your tenacity and uh, your, your never quit attitude, which again, yeah. comes full circle back to that mental toughness, how that was developed and how important it is in life. Um, so that's, that's hey. amazing, man. And I think that's something, you know, we we're I've said it before, like, it's like a workout, like it's something that you continually have to practice, um, just, just being, just finding comfort in the discomfort and, and pushing and, and pushing because it translates, you know, not just like on the athletic field, not just on the battlefield, but it also like in everyday situations, you know, in, in work and in business, um, you know, like for me, for walking in legs, you know, something it's a funny story. Um, so I've been, I've been, I've been walking in prosthetics. So I was able to, I got injured in 2012. Normally guys start the, the prosthetic process and the fitting, you know, maybe six months afterwards or, or three months afterwards. Um, I wasn't able to really start the process for another two years because I had to wait a year to figure out nothing was working. And then I had to take another year right. to, to, to grow the bone and, and then like another six months to let everything kind of heal up before I could put uh, weight, weight bear on a broken femur again. So I didn't really start trying to walk on legs to like 2014, 2015. And I've always been trying to practice and, and better myself at walking. And now, you know, I, I wear my legs every day. The only time I'm, I'm not on my legs is when I'm home, just because, you know, like when you get home, you probably take your shoes take off, my and shoes off, throw on your rainbow sandals, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like that's, that's, that's how I used to be. And so, you know, the, not that the there's wheelchair... anything wrong with rainbow sandals. <laughs> no, I, I love them. I wish I could still wear my rainbow sandals. And, um, so the wheelchair is almost like, you know, just like my at home chilling out you know, mobility piece. Um, yeah. but so, you know, I, it, it, uh, practicing walking, you know, like I would make myself leave the wheelchair at home for like work trips. And in the beginning I would, I would wheel through the airports and then I would make myself walk through the airports, which is like, is, is cardio in itself and, and, and practice yeah. and, and just tough. But one of the things that like, I, I've continually wanted to get better at, and I just, I, I haven't, is being able to be more comfortable walking down slopes, which is kind of like the 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 big check the box for I feel like guys like myself with with two above the knee uh, prosthetics because we don't have Achilles Achilles tendons to to help with that flexion to like brace yourself walking downhill. So I've I have ramps in my backyard. I, I have you know ramps wherever I go, and normally going down ramps, it's kind of this like forced like all right, oh my god, you know hopefully make this work. I'm going to have to pitter patter down this thing as fast as I can without eating it. And uh, I've never been really comfortable. And finally I got into um, like the settings, like the technical settings of my prosthetics. And I was able to uh, just make a couple of adjustments to the settings. And just this week I've been able to like comfortably ride the hydraulics down. And I was like, this is it. Nice. I was like, I, it's honestly, it's like the equivalent of like, I've been shooting my M4 
not knowing that my EOTech turns on. Like that's what that's really what it feels like. Like I like someone has just told me that I turn on the EOTech and there's a little red dot. And it's like, hey Ben, you just put the red dot in anything up to 300 meters, and you can shoot up to 300 meter. It, it you know it will open up an entire world for you. So just messing, uh, like refusing to settle for like this is it, and like continuing to push and ask questions and reach out to people. You know I I'm friends with other guys that are injured on Instagram and, and I've reached out to them and be like, Hey, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what are your settings? Like, how do you practice walking? What's your setup? Right. And, um, yes, yeah, it's just, it's continued to, to, to open up a, a new world and, you know, just, just bettering yourself. But I think that goes yeah. back to never settling and, you know, finding you have to kind of work around the solution and, and figure out the solution. Yeah having a having a growth mindset always learning always wanting to learn more yeah uh, and that and that again all tied to the the mental toughness man so i love that and then <clears throat> that's also like uh, i'll be honest i've never thought about walking down a hill in prosthetics and i take it for granted well i take a ton for granted in that i've still got my legs but just in walking down a slope never really thought about it you know you 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 see somebody who may be a disabled veteran and and you see outside their house they've got ramps and and they've got a wheelchair and you're like they're good but yeah there there's still other th other challenges that have to be overcome and it sounds like just like every challenge that you've been encountered that you've encountered you've overcome that and continue to search for ways to overcome those challenges and that's what this show is all about yeah so, well see, just a caveat that too yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but like, no, you're good. obviously, obviously there's, there's been things that I, I've failed at, but I feel like I've done a very good job of like the self AAR, right? Like after action review of yep. why did I fail that? You know, like what lessons can I take from that failure to, to better myself, you know, moving forward. So that being self-analytical and I guess not too self-analytical, but self-analytical, self-analytical enough to, to benefit from for growth. Yeah. And that's, you know, I had that discussion yesterday. I was on another podcast and they, they asked, Hey, you know, you know, what is it that you bring from the military into the civilian world that you think is one of the biggest takeaways? And I was like, it, it is the AAR, you know, the lessons learned and, and taking failure and learning from it, taking even success and learning yeah. from it. Okay. What did I do right in this situation? What did I do wrong? And just making yourself or making your team, making your organization better from it. And uh, it's it funny enough, um, the, the Veterans Path, the nonprofit that, that I'm doing this podcast for and that I work for, um, the executive director, David Drake, he's not a, he's not a military guy. He's loving him to death, but he's not a military guy. And I was like, we, we had, I forget what it was exactly, but we had, uh, I won't call it a failure, but a, a little hiccup, hiccup. And I was like, hey, man, we need to do an AAR on that. And he's like, a what? And I was like, an after action <laughs> review. And, and after that, now that's become a normal thing. Uh, whether yeah. we're doing something well or or not, we do an AAR uh, in in Veterans Path and learn from from our our uh, mistakes and our successes. And I think that's a, a lesson that does apply throughout life. So good on you for for doing that. So Ben, that's that's really all the questions and comments I had. What, if anything, is there that we haven't spoken about that you would like our listeners to hear? Um. <laughs> there's there's a, a lot of guests um I don't, I don't know i mean i feel like that's a good all-around uh encompassing uh you know my, my story and kind of things that i i found successful um you know the mindfulness piece i i think is pretty big 
Um, do you practice uh, you know, yourself at all? Yeah, I do. Um, nice. And in various forms, I guess. So I'm very big into uh, the sauna, not just for its like physical benefits of being in like the heat and what it does for at a cellular cellular level, right. um, but also just that uh, that mental toughness piece that we're, that we're talking about again, because I think sometimes you know, during the day, it's very easy to have all these different voices in your head or, or be very self-critical um, or, you know, be focused on a certain problem and only being looking at it from a certain angle. But when you make your take away that comfort piece and, you know, the, the, the cold water is another uh, great example of that, you know, you're in the heat and all you can think is like, oh my God, it's so hot, you know, or you're in the water and all you can think is like, this, this is so like, I just want to, yeah. you know, I got to get out. You know, like, exactly. And yeah. uh, it's almost like that quick, um, like that break, or it gives you like a different perspective on thoughts. I feel like I have my best, um, just my best ideas, like work-wise or just like things that have been bothering me about life. Um, sometimes like after the, a after an ice bath or, or after a sauna session, it's just like that, uh, it's like a moment of clarity um, to, to help with that. Yeah. So totally. I, I mean, I think my, I was, I was very, so I was very big into hot yoga uh, also um, yeah. before COVID and it shut down my, my hot yoga studio here in town. So I just had to rely on the sauna and, uh, and then during the, the winter months, jump in the, the cold pool or take cold showers to, to change it up a little bit. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a big believer in that stuff just because I think it does help as, as meditation and to like quiet the mind and find, uh, some stillness for a moment because you know everyone's so busy nowadays that it it, it really helps just to kind of take like a mental knee and like be able to self-analyze or think about a problem you know not thinking about a problem and kind of come back to it like uh, with with a fresh set of uh, eyes. I like that that analogy there to take the mental knee. Uh, I mean, yeah. as again in, in special operations, whenever you're running the gun in and you get a you get a second to to take a break and stop look listen <laughs> you know take a knee that's what you do right yeah and uh, that's that's one thing I, I think we as society we as human beings in this day and age are not doing enough of and it yeah. can really always change your mindset change the way you you see and feel things so that's uh yeah that's an awesome meth method man wim hof uh, i'm a big fan of with his his cold uh training uh and, and cold water immersion ice baths everything um that's that's amazing uh for for you mentally and i've done a few sauna sessions as well uh though i'm, I'm more a fan of the cold personally yeah. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't handle the heat man I can't it was funny it. i i think i told you or I, maybe when we we're emailing i told you about it so the sauna that i normally go to is at the ymca down the street and with covid it got shut down so during the summer i was like you know damn, you know, all I can do is take like cold showers or just, you know, or, or do yoga uh, downstairs or outside. And that's good, but I'm kind of missing, like, I'm missing that heat and like sweating it out. And yeah. uh, I was like, well, well, hell, I got a black truck and it gets, <laughs> it gets pretty hot in there. And so, so I, I, I lifted the back seats of my F-150 and I put towels down. So that way I wasn't like making a sweaty mess. And then I was still smart about it. I have my like sun toe heart rate monitor. So I got my heart yeah. rate monitor on, I got a bottle of water and I just, I turned my truck into a sauna. Cause I was like, well, I mean, it's really just <laughs> the body's, you know, if I can duplicate the heat and I, my body doesn't know if I'm in a truck or if I'm in a sauna, 
It's right. just that at a cellular level, I'm, I'm cooking away the, the, the cancer cells, you know, I'm, I'm re I'm making my body go into like survival mode. Like that's really right. what you're, you're initiating. So I was able that's to. That's amazing. I think uh, <laughs> you've got to be the first person I've ever heard. So I was, I was going to post that. I was going to post that on social media, but I was like, nah, I probably, I probably won't. Cause God forbid somebody like, I, I get blamed for somebody trying to lock himself in their car and like they pass yeah. out and then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that could go sideways pretty quick. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. That, this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate your time and uh, I, I appreciate your service. And now also what it is you're doing, sharing your story about mental toughness, mental tenacity, and then also what you did in finding a new procedure to help other amputees like yourself get back to some semblance of normal life for themselves. So good on you. If, if people that are listening wanted to get a hold of you or ask questions, what's the best way for them to follow you, find you, ask questions from you? Um, probably just hit me up on Instagram. Uh, I, I post on there every now and then. Nothing, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't run any sort of uh, program or, or anything like that, but that's probably the best way for anybody to, to reach out to me is uh, just hit me up on Instagram. Right on. It's harrow 37 it's pretty simple. There you go. Be hero 37. Well, Ben, like I said, it's been an honor. Thank you for, for your time. Thank you for your service. And uh, thanks for what you're doing. And until we speak again, stay safe and stay healthy. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.